What is going on? Welcome to another edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance, who of course covers the team at The Athletic. And uh, quick update, still no wins. Still no wins for the Vancouver Canucks after last night. Another one goal loss. This time at home to a Carolina Hurricanes team. Everything the Carolina Hurricanes do is thoughtful. Right? That's the big distinction that you could notice in terms of the game last night, right? Everything feels cohesive, like like a part of something larger, a small part of something larger, right? They amass draft picks no matter what. They are extremely confident in their ability to replace players effectively without sacrificing their perch as one of the NHL's top teams, right? They understand the value of cap space mm-hmm. better than perhaps anyone and are able to find, you know, extraordinarily cheap replacements for their players as a result, right? Anthony D'Angelo, bye. Brent Burns, free. <laughs> Vincent Trocek, bye. Max Pacioretty, who hasn't even played for them. They're yep. still one of the best teams in the league. Free. In fact... You get something. In fact, you get you a get defenseman. Who looked pretty good last night, by the way, and yeah. Dylan Coughlin. A local kid, too. The distinction between the Hurricanes' intentionality in everything and whatever it is that the Canucks are doing could not be sharper, could not be more stark, and it is absolutely maddening to witness. Maddening. Because for all that we would love on a day when the Canucks... You know, have ha, are coming off their seventh consecutive loss to open a season that just 14 days ago opened with a fair bit of hope, right? Mm-hmm. As much as we'd love to cast, you know, stones into a glass house. <laughs> Team didn't play that badly. You know, like, until the third period, when yeah. once again a better team than them patted them on the head and completely took over the game for just the just the length of time they needed to win it, which is a troubling trend. I thought Vancouver played as well as you could expect. Like, I thought the effort was there. I thought you could see the work. I thought Oliver ekman Larson and Tyler Myers, despite struggling to contain the speed of guys like Svechnikov and Jarvis, moved the puck relatively well. I thought Jack Rathbone held up. Um, you know, I'm not looking at the list of Canucks players and, and coming away with a ton of guys who I'd be like, he had a bad game. He had a bad game. That was an unconscionable giveaway. That was a brutal missed hit. He played soft. Like, I'm not coming away with much of that, to be totally honest with you, Jamie. I- I'm just coming away with a sense that this hodgepodge, go-for-it-always team has kind of reached the end of their ability to even convince fans that they're the minimum quality required to actually be in a playoff chase of any kind, right? Like, they've they finally hit their ceiling in terms of even selling the flimsiest possible version of just get in and anything can happen hope. Mm-hmm. With a defense that is incompatible with the act of winning in the NHL, when Quinn Hughes is in the lineup, and without him in the lineup... Looks very Habs-esque. Very Montreal Canadiens-esque. And it's just so frustrating because I don't even know 
Like, again, I, I don't go through the list of Canucks players and find a lot of guys to point a finger at. I don't go through, I don't go to Bruce Boudreau and find a coach who I don't think, you know, can, can find the solution. I don't think there's a solution. That's what's so tough, I think, about waking up this morning and sort of grappling with the hopelessness we witnessed at Rogers Arena on Monday night. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star <laughs> team. I forgot to pay the bills. That's all right. Avenue, <laughs> that's what I'm here for. AvenueMachinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com. And, of course, we're coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And, of course, as always, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. There were a few things that really struck me about the game last night. The first is, I don't think you're wrong that the Canucks didn't play that poorly, and especially on the effort side of things. I think really the only time the effort has been noticeably lacking for me this season was the third period against Buffalo. I can't think of too many other times where I'm looking at it and thinking, the team's not trying hard. The team's tried hard, more or less. It's just they're not, they're, they're, they're either there's not enough talent or the talent is in the wrong configuration to make that effort actually pay off into wins. The only other one I'd add was the first period in Philly. I felt like they were playing like sure. a team that wasn't taking the Flyers seriously. Sure. And boy, would it be nice to have a win now, yeah. right? I, I felt like that was the only other time. So the first period in Philadelphia and the third period against Buffalo. But the other thing is, I actually didn't think Carolina played that well. No, they didn't. Like, did Carolina break a sweat? Did Carolina get out of their second gear? Sorry, they did break a sweat, but they didn't get out of their second gear until they absolutely had to to yeah. win the game. And I thought there was even a lot of moments, especially in the first 40 minutes, where... That team works so hard, though. You know, yeah. like, they're, they're always working. It's just that they weren't... Like, they but had I, a lot of those, what I call chances at chances. Mm. Some of those plays that weren't just... weren't quite coming off to, to you know create a sense of duress around Thatcher Demko, but they had the opportunities to do so. The work rate was there. It's just they weren't quite slick in their execution. There were a lot of moments where it felt like, whether it was because of their sloppiness or just a random bounce, but even something as simple as, you know, there's a puck in the neutral zone, and if it had been like two centimeters closer to Carolina, they would have been away on a rush chance. For you sure. know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. And that, that that added up a lot, and it didn't materialize into chances, but it was... They were so close to, as you said, having those chances a lot. Well, I'd add, like, the guy who stands out for me in the game last night is having had the worst game on either team. Like, the only guy that I would be carving in any respect on either team would be uh, Tavo Teravainen. I mm-hmm. thought I thought Teravainen had a really poor game from a puck management perspective, lost a lot of battles, missed the read on Bo Horvat's uh, mm-hmm. setup to JT Miller, which was a pretty, like, clearly his defenders had, had gotten their wires crossed. Uh, Brent Burns had skated them into trouble four on five. Um, that was the only guy. And I think that w- when Carolina's, you know, they have, like, four high-end skill guys and, and a bunch of guys who give you an honest accounting yep. of themselves, when one of those guys is off, I think that's kind of what it can look like, right? I mean, until this team gets Max Pacioretty back and then makes their inevitable ad at the deadline, Right, um, you know they they are prone to looking a little bit limited. I think when one of Aho, Teravinen, Jarvis, Svechnikov is not on their game. Yeah, it was really striking to me the fact that they were obviously not firing on all cylinders and yet still in complete control of the game at all times, in absolute complete control of the game. How many shots did the Canucks have in the third period? Three, and one of them was an eighty-one foot backhand from yep. Jack Rathbone. 
Uh, the Jack Rathbone 81-foot backhand was their only shot after JT Miller tied the game because a puck bounced off of Jesperi Kotkaniemi's face. Hey, Kotkaniemi had a great game. Kotkaniemi was an absolute bulldozer for that Carolina Hurricanes team. Um, I mean, I, I just... Like, this team can't measure up against a team like Carolina. They can't. And the other thing was, you <laughs> know, know sometimes... There was a real sameness to, ever, to to it last night, and I know you put out the clip on Twitter of you know Canucks defenders under pressure and just kind of jamming it up the boards. But uh, and a lot of times in hockey games, you'll see you know maybe there's some adjustments in the game, or you know one team has their foot on the gas for this time, and then the other team fights back. This felt like 60 minutes of boa constriction on it on a, of it on a loop. Yeah, like you know exactly what's going to happen on every possession. Carolina's going to get the puck deep, and if they're not going off for a change, their forecheck is going to be on top of the Canucks defenders, and it's probably going to be a turnover, or it's going to be, you know, okay, you got the puck out to the red line, and now you can go for a change, but Carolina gets it and regroups and comes back at you, right? Like, that was that over and over and over again. Well, and don't ignore the contrast between the Canucks jamming the puck, hopefully off the wall, right into traffic, <laughs> created by the Carolina Hurricanes' oncoming compact forecheck. And the fact that every time it was in the reverse end, in the Carolina end, the Canucks dumped it in. Carolina, a mobile Carolina Hurricanes defender skates back to retrieve it. D to D or finds the bypass um, move either to the half wall or up the middle and out with speed. Time after time, right? Why do you think the Canucks didn't generate? Their forecheck didn't play. Not that it, they didn't have the effort. I thought you saw some really good moments, uh, anticipation-wise, from J.T. Miller and his new perch on the on the wall. Mm -hmm. I thought Mikheyev had some moments where he was a handful in that spot. Um, you know, less so with the puck, but without it, you could see what Mikheyev can bring. Pedersen, obviously, I think was disruptive repeatedly yep. on the forecheck, but I mean, what what did it come to? Sixteen shots, nothing. Like yeah. it came to nothing. And this text comes in unsigned. Canucks, quote, didn't play poorly, but they got shot outshot by over two times at home. First goal uh, was on a free power play due to a whack challenge by the opposing coach. Blow it up. And yeah, there's another game where it's like, you kind of got a bounce there. No, you didn't kind of get a bounce. You got a bounce. It was a terrible call, first of all. Yeah. And it was the worst type of terrible call because it was like, first of all, the puck is already by Thatcher Demko before his pad makes any contact with... Uh, whoever it was, Paul Stasny or, yeah, or, so. or uh, Derek Stepan, who playing on the same line, two like sort of like f faceless, um, on the downhill side of their career, first line centerman is like a little cruel, right? Like I kept thinking like, which one is it, Stasny or like I kept mi mixing it well, up. Well, it's also just like, uh, again, speaking of how similar. Carolina does things, you yeah, know, so many teams, so many teams would look at that. Well, can they really help us in a fourth line role? You know what I mean? Are they those types of players to help us in a fourth line role? And Carolina's like, yeah, they're better than most fourth liners. So <laughs> guess what? They're going to help us in a fourth line role. They're experienced. They're going to work hard to stay in the league. And we're going to play them together and just win draws and control play with them. And it's going to be great. <laughs> Carolina, man. It's so funny. Yeah. But yeah, they got a huge break there. Like it should have been 2 nothing. Well, it should have been 2 nothing, And then... It's a bad call that's also unchallengeable. You can't overturn it because contact was, in fact, made. Rod Brindamore does it anyway. Yeah, challenge goes against them. And, you know, I will say I thought it was kicked in by Jesper Fast. So I I, I literally saw that play in live and in real time, and I thought, no way that can count. 
That's a screamer strike from the box. <laughs> Erling Haaland himself would be jealous of Jesper Fast. On the volley, no less. On the volley, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful team move. What? What quality? What, class? what, what class? quality? Um, I thought it was a clear kick. I thought it was a clear kick. NHL reviewed it. It's not challengeable. Yes. But the NHL reviewed it. Clearly, that was what the delay was. Uh, they they found... Look. So here's my, my quick take on it is I want that... Goal to, to count. count as a goal. Me too. Me too. Every time. Frequently, the NHL says it does not, but I think it should. Less frequently than they used to, though, right? Like, it, yes. I think I think they've relaxed it a fair bit so long as. But the to skates... me, that's a clever angle of your skate, and yes, it, of course, it goes forward a little bit. You're skating. It's that's how sk- it works. It's a skill play. At the end yeah. of the day, it's a skill play, and I agree with you that goal should count all day long. But I thought it was a direct kicking motion, and I thought, as the rule is written, that it that it should have been ruled off. But. You know, I also thought the other one should have been ruled in. And and to be fair, as Donkey texts in, both Canucks goals. Donkey. Yeah. Both Canucks goals were lucky bounces. The Miller goals <laughs> hits the guy in the face and drops right to his stick. And now he well, still has to make a nice play. And, and Sorry, that was a, nice a shot. lucky goal. It was a lovely shot. Uh, the other one, it was the circumstances of the power play were lucky, but the pressure applied and the deceptive move out that Bo Horvat, like, Bo Horvat chased Teravainen from the net front, but it wasn't that Teravainen complete, like Teravainen did screw it up, don't get me wrong, but you got to give Bo Horvat credit, if you watch it, you'll see his face never looks net front. He skates net front, but mm-hmm. he's looking like he's going to the half wall to reset up top, and that's a credit to Bo Horvat. Like, I know he gets a lot of criticism for his playmaking, that was a really good, that was a really good piece of deception, subtle deception by Bo Horvat earned him now, usually a subtle piece of deception like that earns you an extra half second. The Teravinen mistake is that it earns you like four <laughs> seconds, right? Like there was no chance that the Carolina Hurricanes were going to retreat or, or, sorry, be able to regroup and, and block that pass or disrupt it in any way after Teravinen jumped. So lucky, lucky circumstances around the goal, not a lucky goal. That was a good play. Yeah, for sure. You were fortunate to be on the power play there and fortunate not to be down to nothing, but you take advantage of your opportunities. It's just they got a bunch of breaks, and they still were only... <laughs> they still lost 3-2 and were outshot by this insane margin and could barely muster anything, anything whatsoever in the third period when theoretically you're supposed to be to pressing. 15-3. Yeah, uh, scoring, scoring chances per natural stat trick, I think 11-2 to two in the third period. Yikes, right? And, and the worst part is we've seen this script before, right? It was 9-2 to two in Minnesota. Right, it was eight to three in, um, not Columbus. What was the game before Washington? Mm-hmm. And it was eight to four in Edmonton. So every time this team has faced an elite team with a chance to, you know, win a close game, right? They've not just lost; they've gotten beat, like beat soundly, right to the point where it would take a lucky bounce for them to generate anything five on five and only last night did they get it and by then it was too late right the philadelphia game's a little different the other team gets the bounce and the canucks actually played okay right but those four games for me are against quality battle-tested veteran opponents and they sunned the canucks like they sunned them it was like an older brother holding their younger brother at arm's length while their arms flailed wild they've never in those games they the other team never looked troubled no. Never once looked troubled, and that and I thought the Carolina game to me was the ultimate example of that. To be perfectly honest, like just you're on, you're on the road as Carolina, right? 
and it was just effortless, it seemed like. And now I know they work hard, right? They work really hard to make it seem effortless. But again, they were just never under a bit of duress in this, that third period. This is what gets to the core of what occasionally, occasionally, oftentimes gets me ranting on radio and or whatever <laughs> medium you're consuming. My Where, wherever you can rant. <laughs> whatever, whatever platform <laughs> will take it. Wherever, yeah, exactly. Whoever's paying. <laughs> With the Canucks is... There's these moments, and they're far too frequent. Not just the last three years, although certainly the last three years, but like the last decade, frankly, where it feels like the Canucks are someone else's patsy. You know, like it feels like this team exists to lose spectacularly to the antagonist of the story. Like they're the foil. Mm. And and it, I find it offensive. Like there's something about that that annoys me. Um, there's something about I know I'm, I'm I know I'm supposed to be jaded objective sports reporter, but this is a s- hockey market that absolutely is obsessive and incredibly detailed in their understanding of the game. Right, generational fandom. Right, people who watch these games with their dads and whose dads have or their mothers have their own memories of Canucks disappointment, <laughs> and it's passed down and at least it's shared and collective within this city. Right, we know bad stuff's going to happen. The fun is that we enjoy it together. And also it's raining outside, right? This team goes into Edmonton and it's the McDavid hat trick night, right? This team goes into Philadelphia and it's Torts' Flyers' hot start continues, right? This team goes into Washington and it's can Ovechkin get a hat trick, right? Ovechkin takes over four-point night for Ovi. He's still got it, right? They go into Columbus and it's, oh, that's why they signed Johnny Gaudreau to knife through an entire team without anyone breathing on him, right? They go into Minnesota, and it's like, Minnesota's back on track, Zuccarello and Kaprizov, legendary, right? Then you come home, and you're the capstone on the Buffalo Sabres triumphant tour of Western Canada, right? Tage Thompson picking his teeth with Canucks defenders. Yep, Rasmus Dahlien all over the ice, dominating. Scores for the fifth straight game. And then last night, you get the Carolina Hurricanes machine. And the Carolina Hurricanes machine don't come in and do anything spectacular. They come in and do Carolina Hurricanes things. They beat you thoughtfully and with intent. Soundly. And at some point, you know, you you just want to see this team, like, they don't have to win every game, but you want to see them be at least writing a story that isn't depressing. Mm -hmm. And this isn't new. This isn't seven games, right? This isn't... A sudden tough start that we shouldn't overreact to. This is the culmination of decades of poor management decisions, of eschewing the utilization of of cap space in order to get value in trades, in, in free agency, in every respect, right? It's a failure of imagination to be confident enough to replace players, right? It's an inability to monetize pieces of value at the deadline or whenever right a a complete failure to dismantle one of the great cores in this franchise's history in a way that would actually create brighter days for the future right i'm old enough to remember when the trevor linden trade set this team up for 20 years of success right Mm -hmm. i'm old enough to remember that i'm old enough to remember the pavel Bure trade being a loss for this team but hey at least they got jovo and then when added to mccabe and a coin and a bunch of other defenders that this team had, Oland, Sallow, yep. all of a sudden this team had a, a glut of defensemen. Defensemen are always valuable, right? 
that, that becomes the core of the Sedin trade, right? The way that this team has functioned has brought us inevitably to this point where there's no move to extreme so long as it's future-looking, so long as it's future-oriented, right? There's nothing you could tell me that the Canucks should do that I would be like, whoa, you can't do that. There's nothing that shouldn't be on the table to begin to reset what this team is and begin to chart a new chapter that may, and frankly, because of the decisions made and accelerated, frankly, under this new management group, there's no path forward that doesn't begin with a little bit of pain. It just is what it is. This, and now I, I'm not saying that it's all on the players, right? Because as you said, there's there's a ton of management and ownership decisions that have gone into it. But specifically, this group of players has not earned the right to have things off the table, right? They have not earned the benefit of the doubt and the respect for us to look at it and say, well, you can't possibly do that. But they have. This, this is the problem, Jamie. They have. Right? Like, this team was seventh in the Canadian division, Right? And what was the decision made around the team? It, coaches were retained. Management were retained, right? Um, in Further investment into supporting pieces, right? Bring in Oliver ekman Larson, Bring in Connor Garland. Fails again. What was the decision this offseason? Extend JT Miller. Bring in Mikhaev. Supplement the group. The defense is... I can't remember the exact word. Adequate. Adequate. Certainly adequate, if healthy. Definitely not adequate. And also not healthy. So, you know, <laughs> they don't get the benefit of the doubt now. They they, they have. They've like, been given it. But that's my point. This organization's been all in. But that's my point. On this core group. It's not as if, like, you, you've you run out of, finally, we heard it in, the, in training camp, right? No more excuses. Like, there is literally nothing else you can say to justify keeping this team together in the future. And yet, and yet, I'm, I'm not prepared to pin this on the team's four or five best players. Like, no, the, the mistake that this organization has made was not seeing a 1A center in Pedersen, who's 23, a 1A defenseman in Quinn Hughes, who's 22, and a franchise quality starter who's 26 in Thatcher Demko and saying, we can build on this. That's a rational course of action, right? The mistakes are at the margins and they're, they're cumulative, right? It's 10 years of this, right? It's, it's all the little moves that weren't made that add up to this, right? It's all the fourth-round picks traded for Andre Padan, right? That, hey, that fourth-round pick, it's probably nothing. Mm -hmm. But when you combine it with the second that went for Berchi and the second that went for this guy and the third that went for that guy and the the third you threw in for the to complete the Brandon Sutter trade, or actually that was a second, um, you know, the additional pick you threw to Florida for the uh, Eric Branson deal. I mean, when you combine it all over a decade, Right? It's like that's two players that this team doesn't have. Right, That's two homegrown players that this team doesn't have. The type of players more likely to grow up in Vancouver and meet a local girl and settle down and sign for cheaper. You know, like you've, you've lost 10 years of normal progress that every other organization has on you. And it's amazing how quickly hope can be restored if you just stop the insanity. Like if you just stop making the obvious mistakes, it's amazing what progress you can make. This organization, though, time and time again, despite overwhelming evidence, just refuses to go that way. They're insistent on listening to, prioritizing, hiring, promoting. Whoever charts the most improbable course to the eighth and final playoff spot in the Western Conference 
it's really it's really hard to watch. And the other thing, and we'll take a quick break here. Uh, Harmon Dial is going to join us on the other side. But the other thing that struck me last night was the crowd response or lack thereof, right? And you know, coming off the game against Buffalo <laughs> on Saturday, right, which was an absolute disaster. Yeah. You, you, there was obviously some curiosity. Okay, which way is this going to go? I thought it was mostly apathetic. They're, they, to be to credit to the crowd, you know, they tried to get a Go Canucks Go chant going, like tried to buy into this comeback idea. But in the third period, it was mostly just they responded to what the team was doing, which was not much on the ice. I actually give Canucks game presentation a fair bit of credit. They they were trying to manufacture energy in the building, and I actually thought they had far more success than they had any right to have. To be totally honest, based on the flow of the game, the entertainment value of the of the product on the ice. But, yeah, it, you know, it's like the crowd might as well have decided to chant, like, we're not mad, we're just disappointed. And it's like, that's worse. That's even worse. Yeah. That's, it just felt like resignation. This is what happens, right? As a losing streak extends and becomes more powerful for how unjustifiable it is, right? It eventually creates the most troubling force in professional sports and entertainment, which is apathy and disinterest. You know, I, I got a, I got a text from a guy in my absolute, absolute degenerate gambling. <laughs> uh, it's basketball gambling group chat, and he said, um, "The fifty fifty winner is the only adult who is happy at this Canucks game." And then he added, "The kids are happy just to see all the miserable adults." <laughs> that was his take on attending the Canucks game last night. It's yeah. tough. That's tough. It is. It's uh, it's a tough scene. It's a really tough scene right now. We're getting texts in from people who are there, and we'll, we'll get back to that conversation later in the show. Lots more to get into, however, and Harmon Dial from The Athletic will join us next to chat about it all. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. It's Jamie Dodd. It's Thomas Drantz here with you. Harmon Dial from The Athletic is going to join us momentarily. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative is at Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Calm. You can get your thoughts in about uh, everything going on with the Vancouver Canucks right now. We'll get to your thoughts throughout the course of the show. But joining us, as I said, Drancer's colleague at The Athletic, Harmon Dial is on the line. Harmon, thanks for doing this, man. How are you? I'm uh, doing well. I'm certainly not 0-7, so I'm no! feeling pretty good about myself. Yes, we're all, we're all thankfully doing better than that, which is nice. <laughs> Ouch, bud. <laughs> Haymakers right just, off the we hop. We make light of it, right? Yeah. Like, like, we got to have some fun. Like, that's what, you know, Canucks fans are the best at it. I mean, look at their memes. Look on Canucks Reddit. The memes are incredible right now. And, like, that's the one silver lining is like, you've got to be able to laugh at it I, because otherwise you're just going to be consumed in, in the negativity and you're just going to be too down on yourself. So. I just like that you came out with a haymaker like you were fighting Zach Cassian or something. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> on the point of the creativity from the fans, Armin, I did hear that uh, yesterday at the game somebody had a sign that said fire Benning again, <laughs> which I think is a pretty <laughs> is a pretty good joke in the situation, uh, all things considered. But I mean, like last night it felt, you know, Saturday felt like an absolute crisis, right? An absolute disaster of a night. Last night it felt like resignation almost set in at a certain point for fans. And I, I don't want to speak for the team, obviously, but it just seemed like, okay, yeah, this is kind of what we expected. Did you get, did you get the same vibes that I did there, Harmon? Yeah, it was, 
it was tough because anger is one thing and it shows that people care. The one thing you never want as an organization is for people to just accept the crisis as it kind of is and to stop caring and for apathy to kind of set in. And that's, um, that's a really close, get it, really getting close to that. I mean, I wasn't in the building for the home opener, but we all kind of saw the videos and, and the reaction. And last night, it just felt like there's the team had played pretty good through the first couple periods, and the fans were engaged, and it was a pretty decent atmosphere. But once the Canes got two more, it was it was tough, and and in the waning seconds, it it was fans weren't even as riled up. It was just kind of. Uh, it was more disappointment and like a, is this really happening again sort of thing. And, and that's tough for a franchise because at a certain point you don't want um, fans to lose interest. I mean, I, I'm friends with a few, few people in my life who are really close Canucks, uh, who are really diehard Canucks fans. Like they, they consume podcasts morning till night, like of every show, you've heard of they tune in for every game they they're at a lot of games and by by this point a lot of them are already like man it's like it's tough to listen to my daily podcast which i'm usually so jacked up for it's not as i'm not nearly as excited to watch the games and it's kind of harder to to make it through them and um, I mean, maybe that's just anecdotal experience, but again, those like one or two friends that I have, I mean, they're just so, they're such diehards. And I'm like, if that in any way is, is uh, at all reflected by the wider fan base, definitely not a good sign for the organization. And it definitely felt like it was more apathy than anger towards the end of the game last night. Harmon, you wrote a little bit about the Carolina Hurricanes model. What stood out to you? in the contrast between those two clubs last night? Yeah, in terms of on the ice and how they play, one of the underrated aspects, right, because we all know the massive difference in blue line quality in terms of mobility, size, and defensive ability. But what struck me as an underrated but stark difference that I think needs to be highlighted is that offensive gifted forwards aren't enough. You need top nine players who are also high in defensively, right? Because I think a lot of us going into the season, we looked at the Canucks' top nine group on paper and we said, like, it's a fun, exciting group and they can put up a lot of offense and they can score goals. And the issue, though, is that they don't have, especially when you contrast them to a team like Carolina, a lot of those players struggle defensively and can't help out the defensemen. And you compare that to Carolina's top nine, and the, and the Hurricanes don't have a lot of sexy, exciting names, per se. They definitely have some, some exciting talent in the top six, but it's not like they're loaded with stars like uh, Tampa Bay or Colorado. And you don't look at them as an opposing top nine group, but the difference is all of them are just so good from a two-way perspective. I mean, you just go up and down that roster. It's just... Sebastian Ajo and Jordan Stahl and Jarvis and Jesper Fast and Martin Natchez and Toivu Teravine and all of their high-end pieces are also excellent defensively. They're fast. They're physical. They win their battles. They back-check like crazy. And it just creates a suffocating environment where JT Miller, for example, was asked specifically about Carolina's blue line after the game, about what makes them so challenging. And, and he 
corrected the premise of the, of the question said, oh, it's the team defense. It's all five guys and how they clo- close ice in all three zones and as a disciplined unit, as a team. And that's really what struck me about the Hurricanes. And that's what the Canucks maybe don't have right now is you ask yourself, how many high-end def- defensive forwards do the Canucks have, right? Like, Elias Pettersson is emerging as by far the club's best two-way piece, um, but even he isn't perfect defensively, for example, in the penalty kill because, like, you can't rely on him as an ace because you can't win, win face-offs at a high enough rate yet. Um, Ilya Mikheyev's high-end defensively for sure. Uh, Pearson's reliable and really mis- makes mistakes, but beyond that, there isn't much, right? Like, Miller's had his defensive issues. Um, Horvat is adequate in a matchup role, but in his own zone, specifically, he's below average. Um, Hoaglander and Kuzmenko are inexperienced, and for now, their liability is away from the puck. Um, Pod Colson has two-way potential, but still very young, and he's working on details. Um, Garland is average at best defensively. It's They just don't have a lot of players who can drive play, who you can trust in all situations, who can kind of weather that storm. So that was one of the biggest differences I, I, I noticed between Carolina and, and Vancouver. And that's why the Canes are so suffocating. And that's why part of the reason why the Canucks could only generate 16 shots last night. Beyond the stylistic distinction between the two, what did you cover off today? And from a, from a team building perspective, what can the Canucks take from what Carolina has accomplished there over the last five years? Yeah, there are a couple things. I think um, the biggest one is just the way they've kind of managed the cap and how they've navigated big decisions, right? With, for example, um, it's felt like in this market, it's been difficult for the for the team to kind of move on from certain players, and and that's why they've kind of extended players like JT Miller, where um, he Miller's a it's it's kind of like what you've often said, right? Like there's nothing wrong with Miller as a player. It's just, you've always got to wonder about whether it fits into your timeline and you've always got to be wary about signing guys that are in their late twenties. Canes just don't do that. And that's why they're never in as big of a salary cap crunch. Like you look at how seamlessly they moved on from Dougie Hamilton, right? Top pair, right shot defender for them. They, they didn't skip a beat. They were able to kind of find a bargain bin option in Tony D'Angelo and then they were able to build his value up by playing him with Jacob Slavin. And then in the offseason, when it came to pay him, they were like, we're not going to pay you. We're going to peddle you for multiple draft picks. And we're going to go out and then acquire Brett Burns at a retained price for a very cheap cost. They're just very good at replacing players and not having to pay for them when their contracts are up. Uh, obviously, this offseason, it was the same thing with uh, Nino Niederreiter and Vincent Trocek. And Part of that was because they had the succession plan with um, um, with uh, Isperi Kotkaniemi, but also a player like Martin Natchez, where he plays the wing, but he's a natural center, right? So you have players that can fill into these gaps. Um, and so you don't have to sign guys that are 29-30, and you don't, that's why the, the Canes don't have an OEL-type contract on the books, right? Um, and that's a big part of what's made them successful. And then when you have that cap flexibility, they've been able to use it as a genuine asset to acquire talent for pennies on uh, pennies on the dollar, right? Earlier in their rebuilding years, which the Canucks never did, they were willing to take on bad contracts and use that as a way to acquire high-end players, right? Toy Buterovainen, who's been this consistent 60 to 70 point type producer on their top line, mm. he was acquired 
from Chicago for a second and third round pick. And all, all Carolina had to do was absorb Bickle's $4 million cap. It. That's such a talented young player who's been such a critical part of their core. Um, you look at Seth Jarvis, who is an absolute beast in, at 19 as rookie last season was, um, I think he had around 48 points. He's going to be a top six stud for years. He's on their top line right now at just 20 years old. He essentially came for free because the, Her- the Hurricanes took on last year of Marlowe's $6 million cap hit. And so that was the first round pick. They used that pick to take Jarvis, right? Um, even this summer, in, in more of a win-now framework, they had cap space. They, acqu- they, they got a sweetener um, to take on Max Pacioretty the last year of his contract. Pacioretty is still a point per, he's been a point per game guy the last couple of seasons. They looked at him as a major addition. He's going to help them in terms of elite goal scoring ability. They didn't have to give up anything to get him because they've been so efficient and smart about how they allocate their money. And so whether like regardless of whether the Canucks continue down the direction they have or, or if they step back and take a more drastic retool or rebuild. It's just so painfully obvious that the Canucks have to find a smarter way of, of leveraging and, and allocating the, the precious money that they do have. In conversation with the Athletics' Harmon Dial here on Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. And, you know, Harmon, you mentioned the possibility of a change of direction for the franchise, and we've heard Jim Rutherford allude to it as well on TV over the weekend. I, I think it's interesting because a lot of times the fan conversation, and even us here in the media, sometimes we get a little too caught up on, you know, well, is it a rebuild or is it a retool? Is it a full-scale rebuild? Are they tanking? What's the label? And we talk about the label more than the actual substance of the plan or the direction. What would you say, again, not saying, oh, it has to be a rebuild or they have to tear it down or whatever, but just kind of overall, what should the the new philosophy of a new direction be in your mind for this franchise? Yeah, well, I think you have to step back and kind of be honest about where the team's at. And the biggest worry for any franchise is being caught in that mushy middle where you're not bad enough to to kind of, I don't want to say tank, but you don't want to be like 10th, 9th to 12th in your conference and where you're picking out of the top 10, so you're not likely to get elite, elite talent that way. You're not as likely to get the Elias Pettersons and the Quinn Hughes. But you're also not good enough to make the playoffs. Like, that's, that's death for, for a team. That's your worst nightmare. And I think the what management has to do right now is be honest about are they in that spot? Because if they are, then there's only two options. The only two, you know, the only way is either you look at it and go, well, we have to improve drastically enough to kind of take that next step and, and elevate and do it quickly. Or you have to kind of start from, I don't want to say start from scratch necessarily, but you have to really think, Think about a lot of your core pieces, um, guys like Bo Horvat and even Thatcher Demko, and think, do we have to really tear this thing down? Because you can't be caught in the middle. You have to be decisive in which way you move um, in terms of your next step. And I think when you look at the limitations and the restrictions on improving this team, um, given that they don't have a lot of money to improve, right? Like, you ask yourself, what's the quickest way to improve a team um, and, and and it usually requires like let's look at let's look at Ottawa right like I I 
I'm not as high on Ottawa in terms of, oh, like they're, they're out of the rebuild and they're going to be a playoff team this season. But that's been, that's been the poster boy of, oh, that's a team that's improved quickly. We look at what were the, what were the, what, the ingredients of that. Well, you needed a blue chip prospect who's ready to graduate in Jake Sanderson. He's ready to play in your top four. You, so you needed that. You needed cap space to be able to go out and get an Alex Dabrinkit, um, acquire uh, a Claude Giroux. You also needed the trade assets to be able to trade away a top 10 pick for Dabrinkit. And, and that's where the Senators, you know, they hadn't traded away many of their top picks and they could afford to do that. So you look at those ingredients and the Canucks just don't have enough of them, right? Like they don't have um, a top four defender who's ready to step in next season or even within the next two years, who's really going to help change the shape of the blue line. Um, they don't have anyone who's able, any ELC talent in the pipeline right now that's going to make a legit difference in moving the needle. Um, they don't have a lot of, they're not going to have a lot of cap space in the summer when you talk about, for example, JT Miller's extension is going to kick in next season. And um, a lot of your core players have become more expensive and you've still got a decision to make them on Horvat. So they lack the cap space and then they lack, um, uh, they lack a trade chip. So proving is going to be tough. So to me, I think in terms of, uh, of tearing things down, if you don't think you can win a Stanley Cup in the four years where you have this Demko contract, I think that as tough a decision as that is, Starts with Horvat, and then you may ha- even have to think about Demko because, as much as he's an elite goaltender and you want to keep him around, the team's just, he the team's never going to bottom out if he's still on the roster. And if you look at the team and you say you can't take advantage of his contract anyway at five million, a sweetheart deal, then then what's the point, right? Especially because if you're talking about a potential rebuild, the Canucks don't have a lot of pieces, um, a lot of other sort of like non-expendable pieces where you'd look at and go you can trade that guy for a haul and really kickstart a rebuild. So um, that's at least something you have to consider if that's the way that you want to uh, go in terms of a more drastic rebuild. Woof! <laughs> Woof! My goodness. I think you're right. That was extremely thorough. You basically took us through a recipe list uh, of sort of Canucks considerations. I think you're dead on, Harmon. Thanks for the analysis. Thanks for your time, my friend. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I have to be a doomsdayer this early in the season. <laughs> Woof! <laughs> well, we might be in for a lot of it, Harm, so we, we all appreciate yeah, the time as always, Har- bud. Harmon, how dare you? We never do that on this program. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, okay. buddy. That is Harmon Dial from The Athletic. Uh, breaking it out, you might have to He's not explore like, the trade of Thatcher Demko. It's incredibly right. The thing about having one of the best goalies in the league, and I know Thatcher Demko hasn't been you know, latter-day Dominic Hasek to start the season the way mm-hmm. he was throughout last year and the year before and in the bubble the year prior, right? But we know what Thatcher Demko is, or at least we think we do. I mean, we never really know what a goalie is, but we think we know what Thatcher Demko is. We think he's really, really good. And for a team in the middle, you know, the thing Harmon's right about is a goaltender has such a massive impact over a team's results, right? A, a goaltender can change a lot of what a team is and is capable of. And Demko in particular is probably good enough to at least get a team that's not a playoff team into the playoffs more years than not, right? Very probably. Certainly there's, what, five contenders that you'd feel an awful lot uh, better about their cup chances if they suddenly had Thatcher Demko? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. 
That that might be your asset with the most trade value. To be totally honest, I mean, short of Pedersen and Hughes. But the real dynamic that Harmon, I think, was getting at that that he's dead on about is if you decide to go for Bedard, if you tie, if you decide to go with the Elliot Friedman plan mm-hmm. and go for Bedard, the most inconvenient piece on your roster, the player most likely to waylay that attempt is Demko himself. And so if you are launching not scorched earth, but something close to it, he, he's not wrong. That probably is where it starts. And I made this point on the show yesterday that I think there's a distinction between rebuilding and tanking, right? You can rebuild without doing what Arizona is doing, without doing what Chicago is doing. Like the reason the DeBrinket trade was so surprising for Chicago is that you do not actually have to trade your good, really young players to rebuild, right? Like that's, you know what I mean? That you don't have to do that. It was like, oh, they're going even beyond a rebuild. They're trying to be really bad. They're trying to tank. That's why it was so surprising that they did the move. Although now, I still think the QO situation made that fair less enough. of a less of a no brainer for Ottawa than people expect. Having said that, so I here that's one thing. I think people hear rebuild and sometimes they go immediately, whoa, you want to trade Patterson and Hughes and Nemco? No. You can rebuild around those players. To me, that's not retooling on the fly. That's rebuilding. That's what a normal rebuild is. I think that would be a perfectly valid course of action. Having said that, as kind of sacrilege as it might sound to a lot of fans, I don't think Harmon's wrong to say that you have to at least be considering everything. Like, you're in a position now where I don't think you can afford to just say, oh, no, 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 we can't possibly consider that. We can't. Thatcher Demko, no, we couldn't possibly. I'm not saying it's the first thing I would do. I'm not saying it's the right move. I'm not saying they should do it. But you're in a situation where you have to be considering every possible course of action, at least thinking, okay, have we backed ourselves into such a corner that this is our only option? You have to be willing to think about those big decisions. I think it's pretty clear that nibbling around the edges here is not going to get it done. You've got to be willing to at least think about the big, bold moves that might really shift the course of this franchise. And as you said, he might be the most valuable asset that they could explore trading. There's no edges to nibble at either, right? I mean, that's that's the problem. Like, we know that this team's most, like, their biggest area of surplus is middle six, maybe some bona fide top six wingers. And we've seen the value for such players absolutely crater both in free agency on the trade mar- and on the trade market, right? So it's not as easy as listing the particular top six or, or middle six forwards you don't like, uh, you know, to, to our listeners, and just saying, yeah, they'll get a haul for that trade guy. Em. They won't. They won't. Like, there, there's not a single winger on this team right now that you would think the Canucks could get a first or an A prospect for. Not a single one, right? Um. So, what what else do you deal? Like, what else do you deal? Right? That's sort of the mess that the Canucks find themselves in, and it's amplified by the cap commitments that they've made the last two summers, right? The $12 million to Garland and OEL in the summer of 2021, and then the $12-plus million, $13 million to Miller and Mikheyev this last summer, right? I mean, that's it. Like, that's that's where you're at. And and in particular, it's the 1526 committed to Ekman Larson and Miller that that stands out to me because while both are good players, right? Oliver Ekman Larson was a classy shutdown defender last season. This year, he hasn't looked that, like that through 7 games, but I'm going to give him a little bit more time before I'm like out. <laughs> before I before I expect that he's become the last couple seasons we saw yeah. in Arizona and, version. And there was a stretch last year where OEL 
his play struggled. dipped. Yeah. And I think, I, I'm trying to remember the exact sequence of events, but either then he like missed February, a game or, or sat out or something. He yeah. got a little rest and he came back good again. Right. So I, he's a veteran player at this point. I'm open to that happening again, right? Where it's like, oh, okay, he just needed the two days off they have right now or something like that. And I, he'll be back and forth. I'm open to that happening again. But at some point, he's going to be 32. Yep. And that some point, by the way, is next year. And he's still going to have four years left, right? Like, you're the wheels are going to come off at some point. They almost always do for just about everybody. It's just about, you know, when and to what extent. But, I mean, already I, I do think Oliver ekman Larson's at a level where he's not helping this team win, right? And and that's been true for the last seven games. It wasn't true last season. We'll give him some time before we're completely out. That that contract's going to be a liability over over the back end. That's not, I don't think, unfair to Oliver ekman Larson, a player and a person I have a ton of respect for. Uh, same goes for Miller, right? I mean, Miller's 29 now, but at some point you're 31, 32, and in a young man's league <laughs> where the best players are getting younger and younger seemingly every year, it's really hard. Like, eventually, eventually for everybody, when we saw it with the Twins, like the fittest, <laughs> most cerebral athletes this city has ever seen, eventually you're not able to to do it at that elite level anymore, right? That's 15.26. Really inconvenient. Four more years for for OEL after this one. Eight or seven for JT Miller, eight including this one. Going to be really hard to navigate around that. And, and so if you don't find ways out, if you don't find ways to be creative and flexible, I, I just look at it as your ceiling is the Dallas Stars. And even getting there requires you to find a 40-goal scorer, a 1A defenseman, mm -hmm. and an excellent starting goaltender all in one draft back class. Back-to-back-to-back to back to back in luck. a draft class. Good, that would be nice. Good luck. 650-650 uh, is the Dunbar Lumber text line. I want to get into the the rebuild, the direction conversation in the next segment. So hit us up. What do you want to see? And again, labels are fine, but what do you actually want to see? What should the philosophy be? What should the direction be? What are some of the steps you want to see this team take in the near term, given the state of things around the Vancouver Canucks right now? Right now, We'll talk about that, uh, and we'll play some of uh, Elliot Friedman's comments on the, subjects as, on the subject as well. That's coming up next. It is Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. You, you look like you have something to say right off the top, Transer. Oh, no, no, no. You're now, looking at me very attentively. Now that we're streaming, my relationship <laughs> oh, okay. is with you, so I'm going to take <laughs> questions from you and then give them All to right. the camera. Right. I'm just changing how I do my job. All right. Very good. I'll make that adjustment uh, as well. We are coming to you live from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net, and of course, you can always hit us up at the 650-650 Dunbar Lumber Tech Line. I mentioned the conversation about what do you want to see, the direction of this team, what Elliot Friedman had to say about that. We'll get into that in just a second, uh, but I do want to look ahead. And more Friedman clips. Yes. Oh, yeah. Friedman's Friedman's bringing the heat on the Canucks daily. They talk about the Canucks almost as much as you and I do. <laughs> I have a feeling when they pitched Merrick and Friedman on this idea, they weren't like, and you'll, you'll start by talking about the Canucks for 20 minutes every day. Yeah, the Canucks are a big story in the league they right are. now. They are. They're a huge story. There's a reason they're doing it. They're absolutely right to do it. Everyone is reaching out to me daily 
you know, like uh, agents, uh, people with other teams, every time I do an interview with anybody, right, before they want to talk, like I'm working on some st- some his- historic stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm talking to people related to past Canucks teams, unrelated to the Canucks right now. And every interview I begin, the first things before they start, I'm like, yeah, we'll go on the record. They're like, wait, 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 one sec, one sec. What's going on in Vancouver, man? That's that's the tone around the league. Yeah. So, seven games without a win. A couple days off here, an actual day off. Uh, presumably they'll oh, practice tomorrow. Desperately needed. Very much needed. Well, one thing one thing I'd note, too, like as this team's been fading in third periods, they've kept a really intense schedule. They've oh, practiced yeah. on a lot of days when I wouldn't have expected them to, including Sunday of this past weekend. Um <laughs> The rest has got to the rest's got to be sorely needed, and uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully, a weapon for them. So you've got Seattle on Thursday, and then you round out your October schedule Don't, with Pittsburgh l- on Friday. Let's not move past Seattle. Well, hold on, because yes, that <laughs> every game's a big game when you don't have a win in the season yet. Oh yeah, but you start to look ahead at the schedule. Oh man, do you want to win that Seattle game? <laughs> like, holy it. cow, you need to win that game in Seattle. It looms as large as the Philadelphia game did, right? As the winnable one, the one you need. And that's for a variety of reasons. First off, when things are miserable in Vancouver as they were last year, for example, one bomb for Canucks fans was that at least Seattle had it worse. Yep. And right? they beat Seattle every time. And they beat Seattle every time and, and pretty handily. <laughs> Seattle. Being better than Vancouver, considering what this market's been through the last 10 years, I think would be a really hard one to swallow. And yet, this Kraken team is a far more difficult matchup for the Canucks this year than they were last year, right? Martin Jones played pretty well. You know, Seattle's goaltending couldn't have gotten worse. Hasn't gotten a lot better. (laughs) But, But at least it's not what it was last year to this point anyway. And they've got a lot more speed up front. Right, I mean, when you combine McCann with Beignet, or Beniers, excuse me, I always want to call him Beignet, I don't know why, it's my Steve Bernier bias <laughs> kicking in. <laughs> Beniers, Brandon Tanev back and healthy, that makes a huge difference to the speed of that forward group. Burakovsky added, right, I mean, th- this forward group can move, they're transitioning the puck so much more sharply than they have in the past, so, you know... That's not an easy game by any means for the Canucks, but no, it's I mean, one they absolutely have to have. There are no easy games right now. No. <laughs> there are no easy games right now. And, yeah, you just look at it because you're in Seattle on Thursday. Then you've got the back-to-back at home against the Pittsburgh Penguins, who are on fire to start the season. Well, and the Pittsburgh Penguins, with their team speed, right, are a team that plays like they're designed to defeat the Canucks, right? Yeah. I mean, that is a team that the Canucks have had a miserable time against the last few years. Pitts- Every time out. Pittsburgh has the best goal differential in the league right now. So you got to play them on a back to back. Yeah, it's short travel and all of that, but you got to play them on a back to back. Speaking of bad stylistic matchups uh, for the Canucks, after the Pittsburgh game, you've got now you got a few days off in between, but the New Jersey New Jersey Devils come to town and another team built on speed, built on puck possession. You look at what their their goaltending still is a major issue, right? I understand that, but you look at what they're doing in terms of 5 on 5 shot metrics, they're right there at the top of the league. Do you give Martin the Seattle game? No, right? You just have to get in the win call. I think you got to get a win. So then then you're going Martin probably against Pittsburgh. Yep. Tough. Tough right there. And then you're right, the Devils, I mean, we saw it last year. We saw one game where Devils goaltending looked like Devils goaltending. Right, and the Canucks won handily, going away. 
But we also saw the game where the New Jersey Devils skated the Canucks off the rink, right? That team is controlling play expertly. And while there's gaps in their defensive ability at the team level, the amount of talent and speed on that lineup is, you know, hellfire for this team, right? Like, it's a really tough stylistic matchup, as you said. Maybe one of the most difficult in the league. Maybe one of the most difficult that the Canucks will face all year, to be totally honest with you. So, yeah, that's not a game that you look at and say, like, easy win night. Again, no easy wins, but, like, that's a tough one. That in particular is a tough one. I wouldn't even be stunned if the Canucks are home dogs for that game. Mm. Yeah, Uh, and probably a pick them, but, I mean, I won't be stunned. I won't be stunned if the Canucks are, like, plus 105 to win it. You look, and then you look ahead after that one, and you've got Anaheim struggling to start the season, Nashville, and but, then you're back out on the road for five games out east. Well, and let's not forget, Nash, uh, Anaheim's played really badly. Like, Dallas Akins feels like, you know, if you're holding any Bruce Boudreaux long shot tickets, right, <laughs> you're, you're a little nervous about Anaheim, I think, in particular, as the team that's likely to be first to fire their coach. That team has not come out the way that people... Uh, like me, who thought they'd at least be a lot of fun. And they've been fun most nights, but you know they haven't come out and played with the type of systematic discipline that, that I was hoping to see. But one, one thing they do really well, even as they're not playing very well, is they transition the puck, right? You've got Shattenkirk, you've got Drysdale, and you've got Klingberg on the right side. They're a team that should be able to avoid feeding Vancouver's forecheck, and that always makes for a long night for the Canucks, typically speaking, particularly if Hughes is still out at that juncture. And then, so, as I said, you're back out on the road. It's five games, uh, so this is into early November. It's Ottawa, Montreal, Montreal in a back-to-back, so not getting any favors there, right, with another team that you look at and think is weak. You'd much rather it be the opposite, where you're going to Montreal first. Yeah, and then you've got a brutal back-to-back that weekend in Toronto, on Saturday, and then in Boston the next day on Sunday. Although Demko has the Leafs number. But but the Toronto game is the one to focus on. So the the Boston game might be the one that matters the most to Canucks fans emotionally. There's something about playing the Boston Bruins yeah. that matters more. But you think the matter- Toronto game, though, in Toronto, Hockey Night in Canada, well, well, so spotlight on you, I think... It's the center of the universe glare, especially yeah. because the Twins will be there, right? Roberto Luongo will be there. Um, and that, that's ahead of their Hall of Fame in, uh, in document, which is on the Monday, I believe. On the Monday, the 14th, yeah. but on the 13th, they're playing the Legends game. Roberto Luongo playing defense. Twins on the other team. They're looking forward to it. <laughs> the Twins, I mean. <laughs> um, but the, yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that that's going to be a very tough stretch for this team. And you definitely don't want to go into hockey night. In Canada, in Toronto, center of the hockey universe, withering glare. Well, definitely you don't want to go in something like 10 and 4. Oh, 10 and 4. No. You definitely don't want to go in winless. But even like, I mean, they could be like 2, 9, and 3 or something. You know what I mean? That would be bad. Yeah, but that's picking up a couple wins. They have seven games before that hockey night in Canada game, yeah. right? And not all of them are really tough, right? The Anaheim one stands out to me. Um, I think the Anaheim game is sneaky tough. Yeah, that's fair. But still, you just look at where their position in the standings is. But I will say the other dynamic that I'm curious about is, do you remember, um, I think it was like 2013, the Miami Heat, 27 wins in a row? Yeah. Great team, obviously, LeBron, the big three, all that. And Shane Battier, dude. Yes. Don't yes, forget Shane, Shane Battier. Battier. Um, He's the man who made it happen. Early in that streak, I was looking it up last night, a lot of laughers. Great team, blowing people out. 
late in that streak, a lot of like three-point games, mm-hmm. two-point games, five-point games, because every team is like, oh, man, we want to be the one to end the streak. For sure. We, this is a huge game for us. Every game starts to feel like a playoff game because you want to continue the streak and the other team desperately wants to be the one to knock you off. There's like an inverse thing that's going to happen with the Canucks. No one wants to be the one to help them get off the schneid. No one wants to be the the team that's like, oh, yeah, we gave them their first win. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, you know you're... Seattle's going to be thinking on Thursday, hey, guys, they haven't won a game. Let's not give them number one. Let's not help them out. They're a division rival. Yeah, like, I think that's right. going to become a dynamic now. Interesting. I mean, I mean, I think you're right, but I also think there's a different type of, you know, do you remember how the Canucks celebrated when they broke the Detroit Red Wings record win streak in 2012? Yeah. Right? Like, there's something about getting up to break a win streak. Sure. And and it's I do think there's not the same push to get up to extend a losing streak. I just think it well, I think it's, Human not, nature it's not a push to extend a losing streak. It's a push to not be the one you know, to not like be For have sure. the embarrassment. But no one remembers who the win streak sure. is broken or the losing streak is broken against. I just think it it cuts against a little bit. Like normally, if you're a really bad team, teams sleepwalk in against you a little bit, right? I think this is just like the kind of edge that teams need to mitigate against that a little right. bit. You know what I mean? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. We'll see. The the longer it goes on, I think the more that comes into play, which is why the game on Se- against Seattle on Thursday looms so large. Oh. Just like end this conversation. It would be so end nice. It. it would be so nice to just like breathe and be in a norm- a more normal space around this team, right? I mean, I think this team's shown us everything we need to know about what they are. They're also far enough behind the eight ball that it now, you know, now that you're winless in seven, now that you have two of your first 14 available points to you, right? Uh, we are looking at 101 point pace the rest of the way just to get above the playoff bar, uh, the historic playoff bar, which, by the way, is set really low, 93.2 points. <laughs> and that's since 2014. That's the historic playoff bar since the NHL adopted this format. You, you basically have to be pretty close to the Bruce, there it is, Canucks, the, over the balance just to make it. So... I mean, they have dented their playoff odds, not not severely, probably too early to say that, but significantly. Like they're they're going to be playing catch up for a while, barring a really significant win streak to to get back to five hundred. So, you know, you're already in a pretty tough spot. It needs you need to end it so that you know the you're at the point now where you walk into that Canucks room, you walk into the building, um, you talk to any team staffer. Bruce Boudreau availabilities, they're like, you know, sort of somber. Yep. Um, it's like Peter Pan's shadow. You know, it's like a, it's like the, the, the win streak has animated itself. It's become tangible, something real, something that stalks the club. It would be nice to just put that to bed. You've got to relieve the pressure. You need to relieve the you pressure. you just got to exactly give yourself right. a break where you're not answering the same questions, right? Where you where the, you come into the room and it's, hey, what did you guys do well tonight? What helped you get the win, right? right. That you just need that at well, a certain point and you got it's got to come sooner than later cuz as you said it just snowballs. It becomes harder and harder to dig out of. Well, the moment you win, right? The first question is feeling a sense of relief? Yeah. And the player laughs, right? And says, "Yeah. Yes. I yeah. am." <laughs> and then and then, you know, gives you an answer about how but we have a lot of ground to make up. Right? Then you get back to business as usual. A, a win, a losing streak wears on everybody, man. It, it you know, the the uh, the uh, losing is hell in the NHL, right? Like that's the old thing, and that's where the Canucks are. It, they need to just put that to bed. Thursday looms large because if you don't get it Thursday, 
you're in Tough Friday, and then you're into next week, and we're doing things like, what about the Ducks? Oh, no. Mm-hmm. What about the Devils? Oh, no. That's a tough matchup. When's Martin going to play? And and you pretty much guarantee, too, that you're going into Toronto on hockey with a bad night. Record. The withering glare. Not just with a bad record, but with, you know, a really bad record. Yeah. <laughs> like one of the worst teams in hockey again. I like this one, uh, Vikingstad. He says, I disagree with Drance. Going into Toronto winless would be fun because we'd be expected to lose. But if our first win came at the Leafs' expense, we'd make them look terrible. I'm all for it. That's Vikingstad putting a positive spin on things. Sorry, (laughs) Vikingstad putting a positive spin on the Canucks losing 14 in a row. (laughs) To Um, start the season. I mean, now that he's said it. I mean, it would be inter- it would be entertaining. You it would know, be compelling. You know how I feel about hockey taking the most illogical possible path <laughs> to logical conclusions, right? Um, that would be up there. Yes. That would be up there. I mean, could you imagine the reaction in Toronto? If the winless Canucks, 14, like, you Oh, know, my gosh. 11, oh, oh, 11 and 3 Canucks beat the Maple Leafs on hockey night. That would be unbelievable. That would be really good. That would be both unbelievable and, like, now that you've said it, now that you've birthed that idea into the world i'm like very confident that's where we're headed <laughs> uh it's canucks talk here on sports that someone 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 bet that as an eight leg parlay please speaking of hockey night in canada you see elliot friedman every week there uh you hear him on 32 thoughts and also as part of the jeff merrick show daily on the Sportsnet radio network i wanted to play a couple of clips back from friedman as we said they're talking a lot of canucks these days off the top on the jeff merrick show uh and just to the question of What's the direction of this team going to be? Are we going to see any moves? Uh, here's Elliot Friedman speaking about you know whether or not we'll see a quote-unquote panic move from the Canucks here. Look, I've thought a lot about what Rutherford said on Saturday night. I watched it again yesterday because I got to write today, and I really wanted to think. And the one thing I think more than anything else is that he's not going to make – I think what he's going to do is he wants to make sure that if they do anything major, they don't do it in the middle of a panic and they think it through. Mm -hmm. Do do I think he's calling around to see what's available out there? Yes, I do. Do I think they've thought about whether a coaching change could help? Yes, I, I think they have. But I think first and foremost, what he's trying to do is put the brakes and say, we're not jumping into anything right now. So, I mean, I could be wrong, but I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of let this play out over the next few weeks, kind of collect all their information, and then decide. Like, you know, you know how what my feeling is. I think that this roster generally is too good to be this bad. I think you have to figure out who's part of the solution and who isn't. And I would just say, look, we're, we're, maybe this is the year. And you were the one who pointed this out on the pod. There's a ton of good prospects at the top of this draft. Go add another oh, yeah. good player to your group and then decide which of these guys you're coming back with next year. That's what I would, that's what I would do. But the one thing I do think with Rutherford is I think he's saying, look, this is – I don't know what we expected, but it wasn't this. We can, we've got to make sure we don't do anything stupid out of this. I also play one other thing, Jeff, I wanted to mention was, you know, you and I both praised Rutherford for doing uh, after hours, and I stand by that as a, 
yep. as somebody who works for Sportsnet and had him on the air, it was it was it was it was great television. I know there were some coaches who weren't really happy with what was said. That is Elliot Friedman earlier today on the Jeff Merrick show, and off the top of that clip, he talks about you know they don't want to make a knee jerk move when they're in a panic. And look, I understand that. That's fine. Yes, you don't want to make an irrational panic move just because things are going really poorly. I also think there's a very fine line between panic and a justified sense of urgency, right? Like if you wake up and your smoke alarm is going off and there's a fire in your kitchen, yeah, you don't want to panic, but you want to act with urgency. You want to take steps to fix the situation. You want to keep your head about you and make sure you're taking the right steps and you're not actually making things worse. But it's not, well, I don't want to panic. I want to I want to gather some more facts here. Sure, but if you wake up and there's a fire in your kitchen, right, you're not then going to be like, oh, well, it's time to upgrade my dishwasher. No. Right? Like, you know what's really going to help be the this, right move. You know yes. what's really going to help this fire is, is, a, is an upgrade to improve my kitchen now, right? In fact, what you're going to do is you're going to put out the fire and then rebuild your kitchen. <laughs> yes. Yes. But- I, I just want to make that <laughs> distinction, right? Like, again, it's not, and we, as we've made this point, it's not a knee-jerk reaction to seven games. That's not what would be happening here if, the, if, no. if Jim Rutherford signaled a change of direction or made a big splashy trade. That, to me, does not equal panic. Now, again, I have no problem with a degree of patience. What about what about Jacob Chikorin? Depending on what the price would, was, that would strike me as... We're retooling on the fly, and we're trying to push for the playoffs this year. Yeah, see, I would, I, but, but I mean, you're not getting Jacob Chikorin without significant futures. Yeah, so I would probably not do that. I think that would be a disaster. You can't com- you can't commit twenty million on the left side of your defense core. You can't. You cannot do that. Cannot. Cannot do that. And again, I have no problem with the patient approach. Right, because it's got to be right deals. It's got to be smart deals. That's fine. I'm not I'm saying, saying it's I'm like, not saying they need to trade three guys tomorrow. We're going to be so patient. We're going to add Jacob Chikrin in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, you know, I and and I don't mean to be mean about it. I don't mean to be mean about it. But you know, Rutherford has an incredible track record. Right. I have a lot of respect for the man. I have a lot of respect for the track record. And they came in. And their diagnosis, their public commentary about this team seemed so on the nose. And then their actions were so at odds with that commentary, with the focus on cap flexibility, with the focus on needing to improve the blue line, right? The moves themselves are so at odds with what's actually happened that, you know, I'm sure they want to be patient. And yet the only thing that matters at this point, from a management perspective, is how quickly do the top organizational decision makers get to the point where they understand how much work needs to happen here, mm-hmm. right? Rutherford's commentary, and, and Elliot's right, by the way, to give him credit. Oh, 100%. 100%. 100%. That's a really tough spot to be in. Really tough spot. In yeah. a format that's not that's supposed to be more relaxed and more about the the human interest side of things. That's right. what you're expecting when you agree to after hours, right? 100%. And, and all of a sudden, you're being thrown into the fire, but you honor your commitment. You do it like a pro. Rutherford did, right? Credit to him. Not not a surprise. That's, that's Rutherford through and through, right? This is a professional hockey manager, period, right? One of the things that I've been so impressed with him since he came here. Despite my, you know, criticism of of some of the moves this summer, 
But when you get to like his commentary on the rebuilding timeline, we may get there. Event we we may be trending in that direction anyway, mm-hmm. right? You are, you're. In fact, you're there. You're there. What matters now, like Rutherford, still has a chance. I talk. I've talked a lot about his first year in Pittsburgh, where almost everything he touched went wrong, right? And then the three-year run afterwards, where everything he touched turned to gold, and then you know you have the Jack Johnson deal and the Eric Branson deal, and some some things that didn't work out quite so well on the back end. But the overall work was phenomenal, tremendous, right? The Canucks under new management have made mistakes, but I'm not out on a hockey hall of famer with three cup wins. Sure, <laughs> like, yeah. I want to be very clear about this. I think this management group could still do good work if provided that. They take the right read now that they didn't get in their first five, five, six months. Like people make mistakes. Organizations make mistakes. The Canucks made a mistake this summer in doubling down on this team. Period. Period. Not debatable anymore. Not an overreaction to seven games. Right? We were saying it at the time. If they admit that to themselves and with the types of situational awareness and understanding of what can be accomplished with a cohesive organization that they brought in Pittsburgh, chart a new path forward that's future-oriented with extraordinary discipline, this story, the Rutherford and Vancouver story, can still have a happy ending here, right? But that's the essential step. Step one is that this team has to face up to the fact that this group, as currently constructed and with the contracts on the books that they have, cannot be supplemented at the margins to the point where they have a shot of winning meaningfully. Cannot. More fundamental changes required. A more fundamental change in direction. It's a decade overdue. The time is now. Yeah, and again, okay. Nothing else matters. Information gathering process. We're not going to make the trades right now. We're going to see how the market develops. That's all fine, but it can't be. It cannot be. We're going to see how this team responds. There's right? not. We're going to see what they do for the rest of the year. There's just not enough volume. Like, there's just not enough volume of cheap labor coming to help fill in the gaps around some of these expensive contracts, right? There's just not enough structural integrity to the team as it's currently composed. There's not enough assets to trade for significant value. The team doesn't have enough surplus picks. Like, you you put it all together and there's nothing. Like, there's a lot of hopeful young situations around the NHL. Situations with upside. This ain't one of them. Right? It's not. Like, it's just not. We have to stop pretending it is. Absolutely have to. And it's not just we, because I don't think we ever have. Not in this program, anyway. Not in these airwaves, at least within the confines of our conversations. The step is, you have to assess this organization holistically. We have no prospects. We have no cap space. We have a bunch of aging players attached to tickets that are too long. Right? We don't have our full coterie of draft picks. Well... (laughs) The, the only way forward, the only way forward for this organization, the only thing that matters now is that management recognize that and pursue a different course, a future-oriented course with discipline. Otherwise, we're just going to be doing this again next November. Uh, it's Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650. One final segment coming up, and I do want to play another clip from Elliot Friedman speaking about you know who's setting the direction, who's calling the shots, and how the uh, Canucks front office is working at the moment. So we'll play that on the other side and take some of your texts as well here on Sportsnet 650.
final segment of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Uh, coming to you live from the Kintech studio, Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. I'm having an existential crisis. <laughs> Thanks to Kintech for the upgrades in the Sportsnet yes. studio. We're now doing these videos, and we just posted my first segment rant. And something about seeing it, when when you can actually see me thinking through it, I'm like, wow, that's so mean. Man, I never realized. Never realized it was like that. A, lo- a lot of your Twitter mentions are making more sense now. <laughs> <laughs> no wonder. No it's wonder like, people are so mad at me. This is like the ultimate version of like the first time you hear your voice played back in a recording. You're like, whoa, do I sound like that? <laughs> what? <laughs> that person's the worst. Yeah, no, that's totally my reaction to seeing my rant on camera. I'm just like, oh boy, I'm mean. I should be less mean. Whew. Well, don't start now. <laughs> you got you got this far. Doing it this way, buddy. Yeah, I mean, this is at least a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but also yeah, yeah, not yeah. not entirely. Not entirely. No. Uh, well, look, there's, uh, well, there's now, a lot of people, as we said. There's a lot of people talking about the Canucks. Well, and, and now that I'm on camera, all I want to say is, uh, you know, I, I hope they're having fun and trying hard. Yes, very good. Season's not over. Anything could happen. Um, I mentioned. Uh, okay, okay, forget it. Now I, remember. <laughs> I broke it. Now I remember why I am the way I am. It took two seconds. For Anything me to break cannot you. happen. Stop it. Uh, there we go. <laughs> uh, I did want to play this other one from uh, Elliot Friedman because we get a lot of questions of this nature just about the overall dynamic in the front office. So uh, this is in response to a question from Merrick basically saying, are we going to learn who's who's really calling the shots here? Is it Rutherford? Is it Alvin? Uh, and here's what Elliot Friedman had to say about that. Look, Rutherford's calling the shots when it comes to the hockey decisions. I, I don't have any... Like, you can... Look, like, he's the guy who's forward-facing. Uh, he, he's calling the shots. I think that the owner set... Um, the owner um, sets the overall philosophy... And, the, and and Rutherford makes the calls. I think that's the way it works there. Alvin, I know he may call the shots, be the number one person calling the shots someday, but it's it's Rutherford right now. And I would find it hard to believe anybody could convince me otherwise. Um, but again, I, I think, look, there's a lot of debate about the direction of the franchise. I do think the ownership there wants to try to compete. I think there's a few reasons for that. I think it's, I, I think it's because in the past, when the Canucks haven't done well, the attendance has, gone, uh, has tended to go down. I think that the losses from COVID, there's a number of teams that are really nervous about the idea of long-term rebuilds because of that. And, you know, I, 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 think, that, I, I think there's a, a few different reasons like that. But I think when it comes to the actual decisions of, who gets moved or what happens there, I think that's Rutherford's call. That's Elliot Freeman again on the Jeff Merrick Show today saying it's Jim Rutherford making the calls, the owner sets the overall direction, and of course a refrain. Uh, we've heard a lot here in Vancouver that ownership wants to compete, is is concerned about the prospects of a rebuild. And I just got to say, again, you know, and Elliot used the phrase there, a long-term rebuild. Look, that's certainly a valid option that teams can pursue. But when I'm talking about a rebuild, I'm not even setting my sights that high, right? I'm not getting my hopes up that there's going to be any sort of potential serious long-term tear-it-down rebuild. Not Like, again, I don't think it, there's a 
it has to be that way. That's the only choice. I want to see what I want to see is so much more simple than that, right? Like, just show us that you're prioritizing something other than making the playoffs for like this year and next. Just go through like two cycles where the priority isn't we're going to do everything we can to scrap and claw for the eighth seed, and that's going to be our priority. Like, just that simple mindset shift would be so different than what we've seen here. And I think you could accomplish a lot by doing that for like two years. I think you could accomplish a lot just by switching your mindset away from we absolutely have to make the playoffs this year. That's not a full-scale tank job. That's not a long-term rebuild, a tear it down to the to the studs. It's a relatively simple change of priority and how you're approaching things. And maybe it wouldn't be sufficient. But again, I think you could accomplish an awful lot if you just did that little bit of changing how you're th- approaching things. We cannot take any argument about a team that has missed the playoffs eight of the last 10 years, hasn't hosted a playoff home date since 2015, and has missed the playoffs again six of the last seven, working on eight, working on seven of the last eight. We cannot take any argument that talks about the need for that organization to prioritize short-term success seriously. It is a false dichotomy. We're there. It's already happened. The long-term rebuild was baked in because of mistakes this club made in 2015, 2018, repeatedly. Mistakes of a similar ilk that they made again this summer. All we're doing is stretching out that amount of pain, right? The NHL is cyclical. It is built to be cyclical. You cannot compete forever. Gravity exists. The Detroit Red Wings have missed the playoffs for the last four years after not missing it my entire life until I was in my 30s. Okay? Gravity exists in a hard cap league with fully guaranteed contracts. It is childish, childish, unserious to pretend otherwise. Okay? Luckily, the NHL, in its infinite wisdom, right, and its infinite tolerance of equity for for its billionaire owners, provides a system where failure is rewarded so that bad teams do not stay bad teams forever unless they resist the generous levers offered by the league that they can avail themselves of to rapidly improve if they so choose and want to invest in building something meaningful, something great. That's where we're that's where we're at. There's we're there already. The long rebuild, the extended rebuild, the lots of years being not good, we're there. It's already happened. It's happened. That's already baked in. The question is, do you want to get out of it? Or do you want to prolong the amount of time you'll spend at a level of incompetence that the system's not even designed to permit? <laughs> That's the question. That's the Anything else is a false dichotomy. Period. Period. That's the... That's the conversation we're having. And when people are like, well, this this market can't tolerate a long rebuild. There were were 18,000 fans at the game last night. Now, and that was a Monday against the Carolina Hurricanes. Granted, there was a big promotion, the Diwali night, which the Canucks executed wonderfully. The show is good at the arena. As they always do. As they always do. They do tons of great stuff uh, associated with some of these, you know, community events, like community-focused events. You know, you know that they're going to have an unbelievable Lunar New Year warm-up oh, yeah. sweater. You yep. know it, right? There are reasons to go to the game, whether this team is good or not. This market, like, what's the big difference between this market rebuilding and uh, Sunbelt team's market rebuilding? 
the big difference is that you're never you're still never getting below 12k in the building yeah like 12k in the building is like oh boy that's really scary for vancouver that's 7k higher than what you'll get in a sunbelt market well and you're never you know i don't want to say off the front page or the back page of the paper or whatever but like you know nashville they got the tennessee titans in the state in state right like they've got they've got other college football like they're competing for fans' eyeballs, they're they're worried about falling off the radar. I'm sure you live that in Florida. Well, right? you you're still worried about that here, or you and you should be because, you know, uh, Thursday night when the Canucks play Seattle, right? Fans are going to have the opportunity if they want to watch the Raptors game or the Monday night football game, right? Like it all it all still ends up hitting your bottom line. Yeah, but to me, that is that's different than losing the battle to another sports team in your market. For sure. Because it's, it, it's, it, it's like the hard, disposable income yeah. battle. I, I feel you. I'm just saying, this organization, whenever this subject has been broached, is clearly telling whatever insider is discussing why they won't, why they will or won't, uh, under the terms of, like, this market can't tolerate a rebuild, think about all the, um, you know, money lost, think about what attendance, what will, what will happen with attendance in this city, you know, all of these same lines. We've literally heard them in this market for a decade mm-hmm. plus, but the team has been bad for a decade plus, right? Like, this happens every year anyway, right? You might as well benefit from <laughs> from from the losing that this team, that is baked into what this team's going to do regardless, right? Not that they're never going to make the playoffs, like... You want to keep charging, tilting at windmills? You'll make the playoffs once every five years because hockey's super random. And you have a good goalie under contract for another four seasons. Like, you'll still make make the playoffs one of four years. But you're not going to build the sort of thing that when we saw it last for a generation with the Canucks as the third highest scoring team in the league over 20 years and the West Coast Express followed by the Sedin era and you had wait lists for, for season tickets. I mean, the financial rewards of being great in this market are through the roof. Right, um, losing's expensive. Don't get me wrong, but if you lose the right way, if you lose intelligently, if you build something great, it pays for itself. And again, I just think the idea that it has to be necessarily five years in the wilderness—like five no. years with nothing exciting happening on the ice—I think is false. Well, I do not think it has to be that. Sorry, way. it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way, but it is going to be hard to do it as fast as you'd like because of all the harm that's been done. Right. And that's, again, what's prolonged this is not the market. It's not fans. It's it's nothing except the amount of poor decisions the club has made to get to this point. Right. If you wanted to rebuild quickly and you'd done it in 2013, could you have could you have restocked to the point where you had a pretty good team around the twins for the last couple of years? Mm-hmm. I think you could have considering all the talent on, you know, when you think about what even a guy like Luongo returned, right? Or 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 Schneider, um, you know, and, and then you have Bo Horvat. And I mean, what if that team had done similar types of deals that they did with the goalies for Hamhuis and Bieksa and, you know, Garrison and, and actually made some of those picks or used them to get younger players as opposed to Brandon Sutter and Eric Branson, right? What if they hadn't signed Louis Erickson and instead used, those, used that cap space to get more picks? And I mean... You can do it quickly if you're positioned a certain way. Yeah, we're so, we're decade past that point, and now and now like I don't I don't know what to say. Like I just sort of read this situation, and usually I I'm like okay this is the window or like this makes sense this way. Like I I don't know that you can now with where this team is at avoid pain. Like I don't know 
I'd like to say you could do it relatively quickly on the fly, but I don't see how this team's positioned to make that happen realistically at all. And I just think the more you struggle against it, you know, the tighter your fingers get in that little woven trap. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. that's where we're at. Uh, Marcus and Gibson's text in. I just want this management to make move that we can all agree is looking towards the future. It started so well with the Hammock deal. Uh, since it's been all win-now moves. And th- that that echoes what I was saying, right? Like, just change what the priority is. And I don't have a problem with, okay, we're going to do some future-looking moves, then we're also going to sign a bunch of veterans to fill out the team and try to keep us at this baseline level of competitiveness, right? So we're not the Arizona Coyotes. I don't have a problem with that. If you're not sacrificing future cap space, if you're not giving up assets to get those veterans, if you're doing other things... You know, one of them hits and come to trade deadline, you flip them for another asset. I don't have a problem with doing those other moves to try to, you know, float your competitiveness a little bit in the meantime. That's fine. But the overall philosophy and the overall direction has to be forward thinking at a certain point. It has to be beyond can we get the eighth seed in this upcoming season? Uh, Chet and Burnaby says, Drance always mentions smart teams find market inefficiencies. Where was the market inefficiency this summer? It was goaltending. Toronto actually paid assets for Matt Murray. Demko's too good to let us rebuild. Guess what? Trade him. That's from Chet in Burnaby. I mean, again, you're just talking about like assets that teams would be covetous of. I mean, I saw a route, though, toward like I still saw a route before the Mikhaev and Miller commitments for this team building around Demko Hughes and Pedersen, if you prioritize sort of the last two years of mm-hmm. that Demko deal as as kind of the, your key sort of moments. Uh, I just thought that you needed to trade out of your wing surplus, right? And and probably not get full value in doing so, but some combination, and, and I'm not specific, being specific here, but some combination of Miller, Garland, Besser, Pearson, mm-hmm. right? Like two of the four. You pick the two of the four. Maybe it's based on return. Maybe it's based off of cap space. Maybe it's based off of your view, hockey ops view of the utility of each guys. But you move two of those four, in my view, and then you reallocate some of that money into the defense. Like that was sort of my view of what does this look like? And and you do it conservatively, right? I'm talking like the Labushkin Kulak cl- class of deals. You know, maybe you pounce on Klingberg if he lingers on the market mm-hmm. and you can and you can get you know, maybe it's not the one times seven that he got in Anaheim. Maybe it's a four times six, and all of a sudden it's like, oh wow, that's a pretty, that's a pretty team friendly deal for a player of that caliber. Even if that's not my preferred route, right? Um, you know, or or you're ready for the team that gets capped out and needs to move the guy, right? Like you're not, not that anyone moved defenders on the market uh, this past summer, but it does happen, right? It happens. We've seen Boychuk and Letty and Devon Taves and and that caliber Nate Schmidt twice (laughs) we've seen that caliber of player move um that was you know that was sort of what what we were talking about six seven months ago i just think once you commit all more money into your winger surplus (laughs) like now you're really hooped especially with what's evolved from that marketplace over the course of the past 12 months uh we got a lot of questions coming in minor matt jim and north van about an oel buyout I haven't looked into it. My sense is this was the not last making year. Sense. This was the last year that he had signing bonuses. So, I mean, that becomes something you want to. It becomes something you at least can consider with a meaningful cap benefit. When a player has signing bonuses, of yes. course, they're not subject to um, 
sort of buyout issues. I, you look, I don't think that's a realistic path for this summer. Uh, you're basically committing eight years worth of yeah. um, you're basically committing eight years worth of um, money. And, you know, the savings sort of are pretty limited in terms of, well, you know, I mean, you get a lot of uh, benefit in year one. I don't know. Like, it's something you'd consider, I guess. But to me, you, it's you, like, that's probably to, like two years down the road, at least, you have before to you're be going down You closer to benefiting from the cap space materially, right? Like, that's one of the yeah. things, you know, Oliver ekman Larson at least is a good pro, right? And and still a good player. Uh, if it may be, Maybe in a reduced role as he ages, but... I mean, you're not getting better necessarily without Ekman Larson. Um, you know, I, it just depends where you're at. I, 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 a buyout. The problem I have with a buyout is it's dead space. It's nothing. You can't solve it later. It limits your flexibility mm-hmm. even more significantly than a contract, right? So, you know, I, I think I think it's premature to discuss that, particularly because he struggled for seven games, but we saw him play way better last year. Uh, I think we got to be a little bit more like. I don't think it's overreacting to talk about where this team is at because this is the continuance of a trend that has been, you know, seen year over year for 10 years. I think it would be an overreaction to take Oliver ekman Larson's seven games and be like, this is what it looks like. That to me would be too This much. is what it looks like forever. Yeah. yeah. And as you said, like the just dead cap space where there's nothing, you can't trade it, you can't retain it, you can't, there's nothing you can do for it. We've seen a lot of that here. The Canucks have experienced a lot of that. At some point, that has to end. You got to get out of that cycle, right? And maybe it means years of pain with the OEL deal or in like the the final year you find a way to get out of it, something like that. You got to end that trend. The Scott Gomez corollary is one to remember, right? Like every contract is movable except a bought out contract, right? And that's sort of, I think, especially as there's four years left on it, that's sort of where I'd come down or at least that's where I'd lean on that one. Yeah, uh, this one comes in. It hurts Brandon Vancouver. It hurts to say, but Demko needs to go. JT Miller should never have been kept. Uh, you can keep him as a veteran for the rebuild if you can't move him, but preferably move him. Brock and Horvat out the door. Keep Pod Colson, Patterson, maybe Hughes. Everyone else needs to go. <laughs> wow, as well. That is from Brandon sign, in Vancouver. Sign of the mood. That, I mean, that's scorched earth. That's, that's scorched earth. And again, I'm not. I'm not necessarily like I haven't. I haven't spent time sitting there talking to different people around the league. Like, how would you do it? What would you Mm -hmm. do? You know, I haven't really like built out the plan that I'm going to advocate for so much as I do think you need to have a material change and an acceptance. Like what needs to be broken fundamentally is this view that Vancouver can't tolerate a rebuild, right? Uh, That it wouldn't work here. um, And that it's not practical, right? That, that you just, this organization can't possibly stomach losing for a decade. That would be too much. Right. Like that. That's the that's the mentality that needs to break because it's already happened. Yeah, we're already there. It's just about charting the best possible path forward for me. You know, again, I'm not absolutist on moving players, uprooting lives. That's not that's not my style. It's it's just that what I want to see is cap flexibility carved out and then used intelligently draft picks amassed and a really honest future oriented effort to build out and prioritize what this team looks like in 2024, 2025, 2026, when really what what they can aim to be is better than a, a win and anything can happen, hopeful, if everything breaks your way on a knife's edge. Because as we've seen, right, it's so hard for everything to break your way 
if you're just not that good. Like, if you can't win games without your goaltender being the best goalie on the planet, right? If you can't win games because your your 1A puck mover is dinged up, right, and then and then injured, right? If you can't win games unless all of your forwards are at the absolute apex of their powers and, and contributing at an outrageous clip, inconsistent with their career norms, then you're not good enough. Um, the one other thing I'll say about, you know, Patterson, Hughes, Demko, who's untouchable, all of that, I'm not going to be here pounding the table telling you to telling them they should trade those guys. One, because they're really good players and they're all relatively young and you shouldn't take that for granted. The other thing is, you're not at inflection points with any of those guys. Like, that was the JT Miller conversation. You are at an inflection point. you got to make a decision one way or another. Although you're not far out necessarily with EP4. Now, even with Elias Patterson, though, it's... If things go in a certain way, then you have to exp- then you have to trade him. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? But it's not he walks in free agency because he's still an RFA at the expiration of the deal. So you might have your hand forced, but it's to trade him, not to lose him for nothing ultimately. You know what I mean? That's the difference there. So you can afford to – you don't have to play those cards right now. Maybe it comes up down the road that you do all of a sudden have to play those cards, but you're not in that position where you have to do it right now because, oh, man – this guy's a free agent at the end of the year. We have to make a decision on him. We have to consider doing it. Horvat's in that space, and th- that's going to move to the forefront of the conversation here, uh, If if certainly if the team keeps losing. But at least for the other guys, you have a little bit of an ability to be patient and see what happens, right, before you are forced to make those sorts of decisions. Well, you also have to keep a certain level of talent on the books just to make sure that you're getting everyone to look good. You know what I mean? Like, the problem with dealing a player like Pedersen is then you lose the ability to put different wingers with him and have them all look good because yeah. they get to play with betters. And, yeah. you know, you, so you have to be very careful about it again. I haven't mapped this out necessarily. I just know that looking ahead, right, that I, I here's what I know. I know that the banging their head against the wall, having to make the playoffs, and completely writing off the possibility of any future-oriented moves ever has gotten us into a place where the worst-case scenario has already been realized. That needs to change. That's it. We will be back tomorrow. The Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich is up next here on Sportsnet 650.